hear stories of neurodivergence, yet you can't find the ones that speak to your life. Utopia the Campaign aims to platform the voices of neurodivergence across different communities and life circumstances, so we find the words to get the support we need. Join me, Samantha Hugh, Director of ADHD Girls, as I uncover hidden stories of neurodivergence that come from a few, but speak to so many parts of our lives. Hello, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. James Viley. You know, it's so great to have you. Uh, thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to be here with you. I've heard so many good things about you and the work that you do as well. Um, can you tell me a little bit, you know, about you and um, maybe the audience who are listening now about what you do and where, where you specialize in and your interest area? Well, thanks. I, um, I'm a general pediatrician by training here in the States and I practice general pediatrics um, in, uh, in a community setting for 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, my patients tended to have chronic medical problems. They tended to have special health care needs, but not in the mental health field, more in asthma, diabetes, um, and, and kids that had chronic, chronic complex um, medical conditions. So a lot of collaboration back and forth between tertiary medical centers. Um, along the way, I developed an interest in ADHD because my kids have it, uh, two of my three do, and um, I, I married it and I have it. And I, and, and I went along not knowing that for so long. Uh, so I, I tell people I'm a, I'm a pediatrician uh, that takes care of ADHD, uh, folks with ADHD. I am a parent of kids with ADHD, and I'm a patient of a doctor for treatment of my ADHD. So, the, nice. so those, all three of those things. Blimey. Well, I, I didn't realize that you also you know, have, have ADHD yourself. So this is like really hit home to, to you. It, as, as I tell my patients, I take it personally. Right, <laughs> exactly. This is, I suppose that's the only way we can do any work if it's, if we've got this um, emotional attachment to something, you know, yeah. and it means something to us. And so I mean, we want to dive deeper into your work as a pediatrician, working with so many children with ADHD. Can you tell me whether it's easy um, for you to diagnose ADHD when the kids present with a learning disability, you know, um, yeah, in, in, in school? You know, certainly, certainly there are kids and young people for whom the diagnosis is straightforward. But one of the things that is important to me is that we take the complex uh, kids, take the complexity of the presentation of so many of those these kids and look through the symptoms and, and get to know the child or the young person better as a whole person and then navigate that complexity into, um, I call it navigating complexity into simplicity, because at the end of the day, generally speaking, um, there'll be some threads that um, targeting those particular issues will make everything begin to fall into place. You're right, James. Um, I also wanted to touch on the fact that, you know, ADHD rarely travels alone, you know, whether it's in kids or adults, you know, mm -hmm. and in kids, especially, you know, you would probably come across children with, you know, co-occurring um, experiences of um, oppositional defiant 
disorder, you know, being autistic too, you know, having some sensory challenges, sensory processing disorder, auditory processing, you know, the disorders. Uh, it's really hard to navigate and really kind of like difficult to kind of like, you know, isolate. Like how how do you navigate this, you know, with, with your patients? Like how, how do you, you know, help them? You know, and, and, and is it easy to identify, you know, the ADHD within it all? So I, I don't think it's easy. Um, I think there, there's a reason that there's, there is a, a, there, there are commonly misdiagnoses, um, ADHD being excluded from the diagnostic um, uh, decision making and then being included perhaps too, too frequently. Um, but so it's, it's on both ends. It's not one way or the other. Um, so it, it is complex. Kids will present, and when I say kids, I, you know, uh, at my age, in, anybody 25 and under is a kid. Um, <laughs> so when I, when I, when I talk about kids, I, I mean, I, I generally mean patients, um, yeah. but I've just practiced pe pediatrics so long yeah. before I, before I came to this work. But so the, the key is to look at all of the symptoms and then see if there's a common, um, a common thread. And so, for example, a young person presents with oppositional defiant behavior. Um, they are seem to be anxious um, or they seem to be depressed, withdrawn, unmotivated. Um, they've perhaps shut down. Um, they may be having disruptive behavior. Um, they might they might have certain threads of obsessive compulsive behavior um so it, they can present with all of those things especially when it comes to oppositional defiant disorder i i i, have, I wrote a four-part part blog in which i said why well, don't diagnose oppositional defiant disorder and, right. and and what i <laughs> the first sentence in the blog i think is of course i diagnose oppositional defiant disorder but i always feel like a failure when i do so my question is, why is the child oppositional defiant? Because every kid with OCD is going to be oppositional defiant. Every autistic kid is going to be oppositional defiant. And most kids with ADHD, especially the boys, are going to be oppositional defiant. Um, and why is that? Well, if you were told, Sam, why did you do that? Sam, how many times have I told you? Sam, hurry up, we're going to be late. Sam, quit moving so fast. All in the same breath, right? Yeah it's really hard for a young person to navigate that and not become oppositional. They're not having enough successes. They're not hearing enough out of girls and out of boys. They're, 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 they feel like they're being um, reprimanded or punished or corrected so frequently in, in across multiple um, settings. And so the tendency is to, um, I always say kids that can do and kids that can't either melt down shut down, class clown, or in a few cases, double down and get it done. Especially young women will double down and get it done. And their impairment comes from not their lack of performance, but their overwhelmedness while they're getting it done. So that they're successful, but how many nights a week do they cry? And, and I know your audience is especially um, targeted to ADHD girls. And we see this all the time, these young women who are, who are successful. But the cost of that success looks like anxiety and depression, low self-esteem, uh, being overwhelmed in the moment, not really so much anticipatory worry like real anxiety. Um, so so that that's how these things present. 
You're right, James. You know, the, the fact that, you know, you've uh, mentioned the parallel links between, you know, kids or adults with ADHD, autism, and other learning disabilities, you know, that tend to exhibit oppositional defiant disorder. I mean, myself, I've also been wondering, you know, do I have ODD? But when I read the symptoms, it doesn't fully explain it. So another neurodivergent friend was saying, you know, sounds like pathological demand avoidance (laughs) or, or, you know, there's another term that um, people have, you know, in the ND community have learned to rephrase is um, persistent drive for autonomy. And, and that answers so much, you know, I mean, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not in a DSM-5, but right. it's like this need for autonomy. It's from being told time and time again that the way you do it is not right. Correct. And then you only learn to trust yourself. And then the way we do things is so creative. It doesn't necessarily follow a linear, you know, way of doing things. And it's not what society wants. It's not what your school or your workplace wants. But then it works for you. It gets you the job done. So... Or- I, I tell my patients still unanswered from 1969, my question of why do I have to show my work if I have the right answer? <laughs> I mean, you know, you have to show your work. Well, but is this the right answer? Yes, it is the right answer, James. So that's yeah. optional defined behavior, right? That's right. So, but, but, but is this the right answer? Yes, it is. So neurodivergent kids aren't going to come to the right answer the same in, in the same manner. And, 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 Unfortunately, too often in education, um, there's a right way and a wrong way. Um, and uh, that varies by the school, the teacher and the system. Um, but it, it, it really makes it hard for neurodivergent kids to, um, to feel good about the work they're doing. Yeah. Uh, instead of hearing, wow, how did you do that? How did you get the right answer? You didn't even have to write anything down. Do you see the difference? That's right. But that reaction is, I mean, that reaction is affirming, right? Yes. Yes. So and then turn around and say, you know, the problem with your with what you're doing is that if things get more complex, you might need to have some notes. So let, you might want to learn to do that along the way. Such a different approach. Um, so I, I think that the way we approach this is so important in terms of the outcome with the kid. You know, when when I see a new patient, Sam, I always tell them I, I have I, I'm sorry to say it's a canned speech, but it, it, it helps so much. And that is this. I say, you know what we figured out today? If if the diagnosis is ADHD, I say, you know what we figured out today? This can be to a five-year-old, to a seven-year-old, or to a 15-year-old. You know what we figured out today? You have an awesome brain, an absolutely awesome brain. It is not the pay attention kind. It is the notice everything kind. And so when we don't pay, and I'll let them fill in the blank, and a five-year-old will say, attention. We get in. And they will invariably say, especially the disruptive ones, trouble. So they get it from the get-go. And when, when they understand that it's, it's, it's an awesome brain, but it lets them down on the attention and emotional regulation side, then, then that, that really um, seems to help them understand uh, that, A, there's really nothing wrong with them, but B, um, there are some challenges um, my back, I'm, I'm probably talking too much, but my background, um, my background in chronic disease helps me with that, right? Because I can say, well, you know, treating your ADHD is not going to make your grades good, but treating asthma doesn't make anyone a track star either. It just allows them to participate in PE. 
more on a more even playing field. And when we take it to the more physical medicine um, side, I find that there's less stigma and it helps people navigate um, the need for treatment and for um, understanding, um, again, that it, it, it's a piece of the, the treatment is one piece of the puddle to, puzzle towards success. You're completely right. Um, I, I get that just, just from what you're saying that you do not see ADHD itself as a learning disability. That's right. Um, and that if it co-occurs with, you know, the, the, the other challenges that makes learning difficult, like with math and reading and, and things. Um, so because a lot of adults that I know also do not see ADHD as a learning disability, unless it also comes with like, say, dyscalculia, you know, um, the, this dyslexia. Um, so it's, it, it's, so it's and, and you know, one of the things that's so true is that every dyslexic kid is going to appear just um, uh, inattentive in the classroom. Um, if, if, I, if I always tell my patients, if I start speak, speaking French right now, how long are you go, going to sit and pay attention to me? Yeah. You're not because you're not going to understand what I'm saying if you're if you don't speak French and dyslexic kids don't speak reading. That's right. And so especially in the primary years when kids are learning to read and then they have to read to learn. Right. And then the, the disorder of written expression kids come in later when they're asked to write what you've read and learned. Mm. Right. So it's, it's a progression. Um, and so those are the two most common, of course, learning disabilities are, um, specific reading disability or learning disability or what's commonly called uh, dyslexia. And, and they're different, you know, versions, different strengths and weaknesses in dyslexic kids, but they'll all appear to be inattentive. And they, and I go back to that thing that they'll either, um, melt down, shut down, class clown or double down. But in any case, they're going to they're they're going to in some of them, of course, again, especially the boys will be more disruptive because they they're bored and they don't they don't they can't achieve what's being asked of them. So they'll they'll act out and they may or may not have ADHD, but it's very easy if you. you jump to a conclusion to say that they're inattentive, so they have ADHD. And we have to be on guard against that because not all dyslexic kids do. Mm. I do want to tell you what I tell the dyslexic kids because learning disability does not sound great to a nine-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. So I say, do you know what a reading learning disability means? It means that you are way too smart to have this much trouble reading. That's amazing. I get the biggest smiles out of those kids ever. You know, they, they, they have never thought about it in that way. They have they have been labeled disabled and they think something's wrong with them. And when they hear some old guy like me say, you know, what that means is that you're really too smart to have this much trouble reading. Um, it just completely reframes it in a in a such a different way. You're right. You know, and like the kids who come to you, you know, where you say these things to them, they're so lucky to have had that you know, interaction just because I know so many adults who grow up to never have heard anything like that, you know, any positive affirmation about their abilities that they lack the confidence. And it's such a shame because I see so many, you know, people who have so much talent and good and, and you know, who naturally shine and um, make people feel at ease and they don't believe, you know, that they have 
that inability inside because you know of that uh, upbringing and also the way they've been told again and again that they're not with a program and I love the way you reframed it because it is really about you know how society has been organized you know doing things one way and not you know allowing it to be accessible for people who think differently who see things differently you know it doesn't work it, it that system does not work well for some awfully talented people in in almost every area whether it's um performing arts um you know visual arts it, it um even even engineering and and um, business leaders um, that that one size fits all approach does does not uh, does not fit well. I always use the example for people like Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, completely. Um, and, and for many athletes, uh, the same way. Um, uh, so many elite athletes um, have ADHD, mm-hmm. um, and and you know they they're just thought not to be they're thought to be athletes and not students, but um, it, when their ADHD is treated, they can they have they have the ability to do both instead of just having to focus on their athleticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're completely right. Uh, I, I I love that um, what 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 you said, and also earlier I think you mentioned something about um, how you know when ADHD co-occurs with a learning condition, and you know it can be hard for a professional you know to really tease out you know what is what. But mm-hmm. do you think like it's easy, you know, for do you think this presents a challenge to healthcare professionals, you know, to know what to look for and and, and how to help? Well, it it is. I mean, if you think um, I'm I'm not I'm not as familiar with the system for diagnosis in the UK, but mm-hmm. typically in in the states, it's either one of two things: it's a structured interview um, and and rating scales, or um, it is a full um, psychological educational testing or, you know, a, a, an IQ test and then a chest test of individual achievement and perhaps mm-hmm. some broadband psychological uh, inventories um, mm-hmm. that, that hit all around ADHD, but don't really ask specifically um, the questions that meet the DSM-5 criteria. So I think going back for us here in the States, going back to the DSM-5 criteria, the number of symptoms, how long have they been present? Um did they start early um, in childhood? Did they start before middle school? Um, age 12 is the number. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that that's essential to, that it be exactly that number, but around before, um, before anxiety and depression become the more common presenting diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, that, that it is present across multiple um, environments would be the third criterion C. And then D, of course, is that there has to be a real um, impact on the quality of life of the individual. Um, and, and that's what I mean when I talk about these girls who are the, I call them the victims of their own success. So they, they, have, they have gotten a master's degree against all odds. Um, and, and it's not just women because I'm, I'm one of those people. They've gotten a degree against all the odds, but what did it look like getting the degree? What was the level of stress? What was the what was the personal cost to that individual along the way? Because they were the kind of person that doubles down. So, and then the final criterion, of course, is not better explained by something else. And dyslexia is one of the things that can better explain the symptoms for some of our patients. Um, and um, anxiety and mood disorders, of course. Um, can better explain the symptoms. Um, 
So we have to really go back to those criteria and make sure that that we're reviewing that because it, it will it really does help protect against overdiagnosis, in my opinion, that, that, to, to be very careful um, that those criteria are met. Um, so there, although there, there is no testing, no specific testing for ADHD, um, but for example, with my dyslexics, having a test that measures movement and attention to a non-language test or a non-language task certainly helps because as i said if you give them even if you give them um psychological educational testing with an iq test in a um an iq test and a um individual achievement test that goes on for hours and in dyslexic kids are are they're going to be parts of that that they struggle with and they'll, they'll appear inattentive uh, during that time. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, like I, I can only imagine like, you know, with you having so many, so, so much experience in this that you know, like how to go through this, but you know, not, not everyone does. And uh, it, it's a good idea to have all these multiple, you know, testing um, criteria and knowing what to look for because ADHD and other neurodivergence, it can manifest in such a wide spectrum of behaviors. So for example, I'll ask, I'll often ask young women, um, you're, you're, you, you say you have anxiety you, and you, you know, a 22 year old, um, uh, 22 year old or a, a teenage girl, even a, even a, a younger girl, um, you're, you say you're anxious. By that, do you mean that you worry about what might happen in the future, but probably isn't going to happen, or you worry in certain situations? Or is it more that you're overwhelmed in the present moment by the amount of things that you need to do that are not getting done, knowing that from previous experience that you've probably forgotten a couple of things mm -hmm. and having eight other random thoughts because your default mode network is working and your um, frontostriatal complex is not <laughs> adequately uh, wired, is it is it more being overwhelmed or is it more anticipatory? And and they will just, most of them will say either one of three things, overwhelmed, future, or oh, it's about both. And I think it, it really shakes out more on the I'm overwhelmed because the, the young women, and I'm using young women, there, there are guys that do this too, but it's especially true in young women, that they come in and they've been treated, but they didn't get better. They didn't get significantly better on three or four um, treatments for anxiety because they're not anxious, they're overwhelmed. And the physiologic response to being overwhelmed is the same as anxiety. It feels the same. Yeah, that's interesting. Does that make sense, though, Sam? It does make sense. I mean, obviously, everyone's different. And yeah. as someone who suffers from anxiety myself, I yeah. I definitely can see where it came from, you know, from, like, having to be kind of hypervigilant from a very young age. And um, actually, when you said that, I, I, th I thought about something, and I'm just trying to figure that out now because I forgot. <laughs> you know, like, you have to say it there and then. Otherwise, it's like, where is it? Hello. Oh my God. We, we drive the same brain. We drive the same. That's why we interrupt. I tell people, you know why we interrupt? Because we know we'll forget what we want to tell exactly. you. And we really want to have a relationship with you. So we want to tell you right. this important thing to us. 
I remember and now. You're perceiving that I'm being rude, but I'm really just trying to connect. You're right. And it's great when people understand and like we just act the same way and just kind of talk yeah. over each other. But then so um, one of the things I love to say is all of us, everyone with ADHD has things in common and no two of us are the same. Yeah. Actually, I, I thought about it while whilst you were talking just now. So thank you for jogging my memory. Because we were you were talking about how, like, you know, someone who's overwhelmed, is it overwhelmed or is it scanning into the future? Yeah. And someone with anxiety that's what i do all the time i'm looking into the future and then you drive yourself into an overthinking loop because yeah. there are so many possibilities and then you know recently um because um i've been trying to do more kind of being in the moment you know and and, and that actually just saying that i'm going to be in the here and now mm-hmm. and then take a deep breath mm-hmm. and then actually do it it has helped so much and I was going to ask you, because the ADHD is so prone to the overthinking and it's the scanning into the future, you know, and, and I came across an article that said that it's quite hard for us to stay in the present, you know, when really the present is all we have at the moment. Mm-hmm. Like, do you know anything about that? <laughs> I actually don't know the question I want to ask you, but like, I just want to bring this out. You know, does that jog any kind of reaction in you, you know, so about us being you know, difficult to stay in a here and now, you know, is, is, is that a thing that, that you maybe resonate with or, or know, you know, about? Well, there, there are two parts to that, really, I think. Um, the first part is because we have made more mistakes and um, been reprimanded more, um, you know, we tend to have um, memories of embarrassed past. And it's easy to go back to those, right? Times when we were embarrassed, we didn't, we weren't paying attention and misunderstood or um, we got called out by the teacher uh, at whatever age. So, so it's hard to, so sometimes we're, we're lapsing into the past. And I think that that, that tends to breed depression, depressive type symptoms, um, feeling um, low self-worth and isolated, lonely, um, and, and not, not feeling great. Um, and then there is the, um, the, the looking into the future. And, and I would divide that into two parts. The, the first being, um, we know that this is likely not to go well because of previous experience, learned behavior, right? Because we know that we're, we're likely to procrastinate. We know that we know we, we are aware. So, and then also what you're talking about is the overthinking. So we can get ahead of ourselves, but we can also go back to the past and, and, and cycle those loops as well. And always, I, one of the tools I give my patients is I, I tell them that the Buddhists have it correct. If you want to stay in the present moment, notice something in your environment. So today in Mobile, Alabama, it is a uh, blue bird, blue sky day. We've had some terrible weather here lately, but we have blue sky. So sky is blue, grass is green. Um, if you're outside um, and just noticing your environment, um, finding something. And then, of course, what happens is as we entertain that thought of the present moment, what it does is it shifts the anxious thought to the side because it's hard to hold two or three things into consciousness at the same time. Um, And so coming back to the present moment, like you say, just telling yourself to do it, but sometimes even better noticing something in your environment that can ground you in in that present moment. it could be wind, it could be sunshine, it could be water, it could be traffic noise. Um, th- those, that's not as much fun as wind and sun and water, but, but it could be traffic noise. 
but something that it, it could be music, something that brings you back to to that present moment, as you were saying. And that really does. Um, I think that that it, it has been shown that it helps adults um, to to remain more centered and focused to do that. I, I think, yeah, that, that is such good advice, you know, and good tools as well, you know, to really notice something tangible. I think, was it like, you know, notice things you see and, and touch and, and feel and, and taste? Because that just brings you back into that, like, um, doing the tasks, you know, uh, yeah. like it breaks you out of the overthinking, from what, what the, de the default mode network does. Uh, <laughs> I, have, I have a really good one of those. I, my default mode network is really superior. Which means you're also very creative. <laughs> I, I don't know that it always bears out that way, but um, but but on my best days. Yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you one more thing about something that helps patients in terms of explaining um, this? Of so course. this, of this I, I started the eyebrows and I say, you know, everything in, below the eyebrows is regulatory. Oh, how, how, how do you explain that a bit more maybe? <laughs> So I say, do you think about it when you throw a ball to a mitt? Or do you think about it when you breathe harder and faster when you run? Mm -hmm. No. No, you don't. Do you think about balance when you're going up and down steps? No, because the, the, the brain is doing that for you. From the, from the eyebrows down, here is where you are aware, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a network that helps regulate focus, mm -hmm. right? Yes, you can see yeah. it on functional. I can't, but the task positive network. People who people who do that can see that on functional images of the brain, right? We, we, there's yeah. a wealth of research on that. Yes. Well, exactly. it, we know that that network has wonky Wi-Fi and ADHD brains. <laughs> like we had trouble. Like we had trouble getting on the podcast because of the connection yeah. wasn't good. <laughs> right? Right. I mean, I do think that that's ironic that I spend, you know, people say you talk things into existence. I probably created our network problem because I talk about networking problems all day long. <laughs> so, um, so, but when the default, when, when that focus network is what I call it, um, is not engaged, it leaves the default mode network running. And that's why you'll be tr working with your um, school age child working on multiplication tables and at the height of your frustration, they are not paying attention or remembering the multiplication tables. That child will look at the parent and say, mama, why are zebras black and white? Mm. Because the default mode network is on and the focus network is not. It, the, the, it, the focus network is literally doing what we were doing earlier. It's doing this. But there's something running in the background of that computer and it may be African animals mm -hmm. while we're trying to do math. That's right. And to me, that helps parents, especially neurotypical parents. It really helps them understand what the ADHD brain is going through better than other ways that I've tried to explain it in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. So important. And, and what kid doesn't understand Wi-Fi, right? The five-year-olds get Wi-Fi because they're on their tablets and they know the frustration of of inefficient Wi-Fi, and it, it is very much the same. You're right. Yeah, completely. I mean, such 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 good insights and and advice. Thank you. Well, I hope I hope it helps someone. Yeah. I'm sure there, yeah. There, I'm sure there are people out there that will call me out on on 
own things from a scientific standpoint or a, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but you know, what I'm, what I'm sharing is what has helped my patients. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you deal with the effects, right? You know, and obviously you're, you're, you're trying to describe to them what's happening so they understand so that they can then go on and help themselves as well. Right. And so that's, that's, a key that's, part. Yeah. that's such a key part. Right. And, and it goes along with any other chronic illness. If my doctor hands me blood pressure pills and doesn't educate me about high blood pressure. Yeah. If my doctor hands me syringes of insulin and doesn't educate me, someone doesn't educate me about diabetes, an inhaler. I once had a kid who came in on a Saturday wheezing. I noticed he'd been hospitalized three times. He was on really potent asthma inhaler. He had seen another pediatrician and an allergist, both of whom are good doctors. I knew them. This was years ago. I knew both of the doctors, very good doctors. But when I showed it, when I asked him to demonstrate how he used the controller inhaler, he had no idea. So he was on the right medicine for the right condition. And he was still going to the ER several and being hospitalized several times a year because he hadn't been empowered to take care of his, yeah. his um, health condition. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that if we're going to, if we're going to take care of, com- especially the complex um, kids that have two or three or four diagnoses, yeah then we really have to help them understand how to drive that brain um, and help them understand what their tendencies are. And, and, and especially to destigmatize and get the emphasis off of behavior and onto neurology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. I, that's exactly everything I do. I'm all about educating people about the cost and the effect and to give the full picture as well. You know, because it's not always what you think it is, and everyone's different, and that's yeah. why I look into intersectionality. And, and which brings us to the question I wanted to ask you. Um, the last question, which is the article recently in Healthcare Business Today that you've been featured in. It's called uh, "Screening Kids for ADHD Could Save Lives," and there was a paragraph I picked up that I would like to explore with you. And that is around the statistics um, show that those with undiagnosed ADHD are at a greater risk for poor educational attainment, substance abuse, incarceration, and a fivefold greater risk of suicide. And what if we could standardize a way to pinpoint ADHD earlier in life to save these patients a great deal of struggle? So that's the statement. Do you believe that early ADHD diagnosis is the answer? I am I'm unapologetic in this opinion. Uh, I think the fivefold increase in suicide was an overstatement. I don't I, um, so, but I don't think that very many people know that ADHD is a um, independent risk factor for suicide in children, independent of depression, because ADHD kids tend to be impulsive and they get their feelings hurt. This, this phrase that's being used, um, rejection sensitive dysphoria now, I don't like that phrase very much because it sounds like it could kill you. Um, and in some cases, I mean, maybe it can, but I like to just say that we get our feelings hurt more than other people. We're more, we tend to be more sensitive and we tend to be more easily frustrated. Mm-hmm. So if you add easily frustrated, sensitive and impulsive, it mm-hmm. can lead to suicide, even in a kid that's not depressed. Yeah. And we have seen that, um, and, unfortunately. The other thing is there is good information. We know that ADHD doubles the risk of substance abuse and addiction. 
It's a doubling of the risk. So imagine the public health implication, let alone the individual lives, but the public health and cost of reducing that doubling of, of substance abuse and addiction down to zero, which is what treatment of ADHD does if it's started before the age of 10. There's a, a wonderful study about that. If you delay treatment, and so many parents wait and see with the diagnosis of ADHD, they're afraid of the medicine and the stigma, and so they wait and see. But getting ADHD treated before the age of 10, uh, but, but in, not the ninth birthday or before, it erases that doubling of the risk of substance abuse and addiction. So just think of the cost of the societal costs of treatment for those things, work loss, the individual tragedies and the deaths because ADHD folks don't get addicted to amphetamines and methylphenidate. Because if you drive an ADHD brain, you know, if you take too much of those medicines, it makes you feel terrible. Yeah. Right. And, and no, nobody wants to take more ADHD medicine. No ADHD person wants to take more of those medicines no. than they have to. So what do they get addicted to? They get a, they, they start caffeine. I mean, I don't rise and shine. I don't rise and shine. I caffeinate and hope for the best. Um, the um, caffeine is, is the starter drug. And then it's nicotine, booze, weed, um, Xanax and narcotics. Downers is what ADHD kids. So I tell parents that say we don't want my kid. I don't want my kid on medication. I'm like, well, the choice is to some degree between FDA approved here in the States, FDA approved medication or themselves medicating with one of those substances. Very commonly that happens. Mm -hmm. Also, ADHD folks are prone to accidents. So there is a threefold increase in um, automobile accidents in yeah. ADHD folks driving, fivefold increase in uh, being uh, ticketed for a moving violation, like I rolled through a stop sign or I made an illegal turn or I was speeding or reckless driving. So th these are not these are these studies are uh, published and real there that's the science so i always challenge anyone especially in the pediatric and mental health community to name another neurological or neurogenetic disorder for which we recommend a wait and see approach as opposed to early intervention mm. Yeah. No one in across any specialty that I've ever asked that question could name one other diagnosis that we take a wait and see attitude. Let's see if they'll outgrow it. Let's see how bad the impairment can be. You're right. Especially not, not speech issues, not cerebral palsy, not seizures, mm -hmm. not vision issues, not hearing issues. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, why, why do we take a wait and see approach with ADHD? And I, I'll sum it up in one word, Sam. Stigma. I was going to say that. We did say it. Jinx, right? Yeah. You, you said it at the same time. That is the reason. And, and you couple that stigma with the fact that people are medication averse. Yeah. Because of the horrible potential side effects of the medication, which are real. You can't deny that, that these medications can have, have significant side effects, but the but the most, more important point is there's no reason why they have to have significant side effects. If they're administered correctly and the provider is following the patient very closely and listening to what the parent is saying and listening to what the child is saying about the way the medicine feels, there is no reason for any kid to be 
significantly blunted in, in affect or personality or uh, weight loss or growth issues, it, it, it's, it's almost entirely avoidable with the kind of care that we use, the modern care that we use for diabetics, because insulin can be a deadly drug too. Yeah, you're right. You know I mean? But if we're careful with insulin and educate the patient about how to use it and help them fit the, the, the different time release types of insulin, the different, um, the, the, the more modern delivery systems for insulin, which have been life-changing for so many people. Um, if, if we educate them, then there's no, there's no reason to fear a syringe of insulin. You're right. You know, I, I hear everything you say. And, you know, personally, as someone who's diagnosed at the age of 40, I, I agree that it does save lives, you know, and, and you know, a lot of needless uh, mistakes and things. Um, but like, say, in the context of society, if ADHD intersect with racial, you know, and, and social identity, you know, such as like being from a black like minority background, Asian, and also, like, say, if you come from a socially disadvantaged class, this can increase, like, the stigma. But the stigma is almost not just from ADHD. It's like a, you know, triple degree, you know, stigma. Like, Well, especially here in the States, um, you know, we have an unfortunate history um, with the African-American community of medical distrust because of, you know, past egregious things that have been done to African-American yeah. Um, kids and adults um, over the years, um, and um, and so the the mistrust is uh, generational and 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 real, and and it's important. And it's important. Um, different. I mean, mental health in in communities of color mm -hmm. um, is um, it, is sometimes a harder subject to discuss. Um, but it, it crosses all socioeconomic classes and all races. People have very strong opinions, um, and, um, and, and those opinions are, it's hard to bend those opinions with science. So I always yeah. say the only, the only solution to stigma, there, there, it has to be a twofold so solution. And the first is sharing the science, and the second is having compassion. Mm -hmm. Because if I, if, if knowing what I know about the safety and efficacy of stimulant medication in the treatment of ADHD, mm -hmm. if, if, and because I'm a passionate advocate for that, mm -hmm. if, if, if I only come from my perspective and my understanding of, of, of that and don't recognize the fear and the stigma and the anxiety and the ignorance on that subject in the general community, if I can't meet those people where they are, I'll never be successful in helping them. Mm -hmm. I can't, I, I, I tend to take a very casual approach with my patients and it right or wrong, it, it works for, for me and for most of them. I don't, I try to, to listen and meet them where they are. I always tell them you're fine to you're, you're fine to wait. And then I share the science about if the child is eight, I share the science about. But at nine, this is what the science says. Okay. How do you think we can do better? You know, to I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, it's it's probably quite an, an unfair question, you know, because one one person can only do so much. 
but say if we have the power to you know really kind of spread some positive messages you know to the groups that matter and to healthcare professionals you know who, who may have a certain bias you know to, um whether it's unconscious what can we do well, i think the first thing we can do is listen to the listen to the patients who are struggling um like you i was the victim of my own success and got my diagnosis in the 40s um mm-hmm. and um so I think the first thing we can do is is listen to the what to the patient's concerns. Um, I think the second thing is that here in the states, the medical our medical system is badly broken um, and fragmented, and I would say that that's doubly true in the mental health s- system. Very fragmented um, and and broken. Um, and so what we really need is a new system when it comes to ADHD. The, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a good, not perfect, but good guideline, but operationalizing that guideline in the context of a busy pediatric practice is an arduous thing. Um, it, it, it's, it, we, I've worked with the Academy on improving quality across pediatric practices in multiple states through their chapters of the Academy. And, um, you know, even getting, uh, you know, Jeff Epstein from Cincinnati Children's published great information about rating scales and how infrequently even a rating scale from a teacher is obtained at the beginning of the diagnosis and even less frequently obtained in follow up to assess treatment effect. Mm -hmm. So even getting rating scales can be um, be hard. And then I do think that it's important to have an objective measure. Um, it, there's no objective test that's going to answer the question, does this child have ADHD or not? No, no one should ever say that. But in the context of a comprehensive examination, I think it's better that we look at the cardinal symptoms of ADHD, look at movement and look at attention to a boring task. Um, and, and to get an assessment, does this match with the patient's clinical history? Mm Um, so, and then, uh, a better system for screening for comorbidities. I'm amazed at the number of high functioning autistic kids that I see uh, at age nine or 10. And I'll ask the parent, have you ever, has anybody ever discussed autism? Have you ever, have you ever been concerned that he has autism? And the parent will almost invariably say, I have asked that question, but I've been told that he, that, you know, basically have had, had I wasn't listened to. And, um, and so with dyslexia, the number of schools who are prepared to, to really do um, evidence-based dyslexia therapy within the context of the school that that here in the States, I don't know about there in the UK, but here in the States, there are very few schools who are equipped that are, that are equipped to deal with dyslexia. So, there is a lot of work to do. You're completely right. I think over here, they tend to diagnose learning disabilities. Well, dyslexia, I don't really want to call it a learning disability, but that's, you know, a, a label in some places. Um, and dyscalculia, you know, um, dys- dyspraxia. Yeah, they often find that first before you even see ADHD or I mean, actually, autism, if the sensory challenges are high, then, you know, the school avoidance, you know, that can be found out early. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We have lots of work to do. Hopefully, 
not to, you know, like it's going to take so long for all these changes to happen. Well, I will say that the work that you're doing and, and, and that you all are doing um, in just getting the word out about the science and, and yeah. the stigma and, and embracing the stack science and, and, and lessening the stigma. Um, you know, um, Simone Biles, um, the, the noted U U.S. gymnast who who tweeted that she takes Concerta for ADHD and there's nothing wrong with that. And I said, that girl did more for decreasing the stigma of ADHD with one tweet than I'll do in my entire career. Oh, well, you know? I mean, don't so underestimate that. <laughs> leaders, having, having people that are willing to be vulnerable um, to use my hero, Brene Brown's word, being vulnerable. People said, why do you share that you have ADHD? I'm just like, because I drive the same brain as the, I mean, I drive, I drive, it's, it's like I have an iPhone brain in a droid world and so do they. Yeah. We have a different operating system. Why would I not disclose to them? You know, if that is oversharing and not professional, I, I, I do tell parents, I said, Maybe it is. Maybe I'm willing to accept that is that's not the standard way that we do things, that we disclose our own weakness to patients. But I've never had it yet blow up in my face. Um, it, it, it helps them understand that, I, that I'm more likely to understand them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. You know, I think definitely there's something to be said about shared experiences and yeah. nothing you know but shows I'm not making my experience their experience because like I said we have things in common yeah. but but they're there they're there for their experience not for my experience so I want to share enough that they feel comfortable that they feel more comfortable yeah I tell the kids I'm on your team till you kick me off that's brilliant well thanks so much James it's been such a mind-blowing um interview I mean like, I went you know I have ADHD and I talk too much so I hope I didn't overshare that's good I mean to be honest everything is safe okay don't worry because I've been in a place where I always shared too much like to the extent of getting personal so you're good you know thank you so much uh it's so so gr great to have you and thank you for you know sharing your insights really appreciate it I really enjoyed speaking with you and um and hope hope that this will help somebody out there in 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 the folks that you serve oh 100 well thanks james thanks bye-bye what did you think of this episode if it resonates with you do share it so we can empower other neurodivergence too we want to open up conversations for neurodivergence across all communities especially the ones who are underrepresented so they can get diagnosed and find the support they need in life and work I'm Samantha Hugh, Director of ADHD Girls, and you can invite me to speak at your organization or subscribe to my upcoming bite-sized video courses on ADHD and neurodiversity via a new learning platform called Utopia. You can find the link via my link tree within my bio on Instagram and LinkedIn. Special thanks to KiwiTech for being such a wonderful collaborator throughout phase one of this campaign.